0: To Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guests. And I gotta tell you something, people, uh years ago, this was years ago, back when I was in high school, me and my I used to go to the Jersey Shore, a town called Ocean City. And I had a good friend, Marcus Esposito, who I still know and I've known since I was six. And we used to go to the Ocean City boardwalk and try to pick up girls. And back then, what you did was you'd walk with a tune box. It sounds so cheesy now, but you walk with a tune box, because you're too young to get in the bars, and you play tunes and you try to meet girls. And I remember Mark was a big Bloister Colt fan, and he was always playing Bloister Colt. But the other tunes we would play was "Get the Knack by the knack." and it was we were always looking for basically a good girl you know we were like we, we were like no we don't want any good girls but it's just amazing that you know 40 years later i'm actually getting to talk to one of the people who's in the NAC and he's had a great career he's, he's he, now he's playing music with his kids he's out in road with different bands he's going to go on some tour and my guest is prescott niles how you doing prescott hey what's going on not much That's why in, the big, in the big city I know. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm in the big suburbs. You're in LA. Uh, LA is just uh, what part of LA are you in? Yeah, it's still here. It hasn't burned down yet. Now, are you near the fires?
1: No, I'm. Uh, it's maybe ten miles away, something like that. But the wind's a favorable, and I'm I'm in uh, Sherman Oaks, so I'm not in the uh, in the hot zone, so to speak. You
0: know. Yeah. So, so you you grew up in New York, and you you told me we talked the other day for a little bit. You told me you were a really good baseball player. When did you start playing baseball?
1: Well, I, uh, I was a street kid growing up in Brooklyn, you know? And uh, I was one of the uh, most favorite stickball players on my block. And uh, because I was a switch hitter, I was able to break windows on the upper floors and the lower floors, if you know what I mean by that. Right. <laughs> Mickey Mantle was a Yankee for the biggest thing in New York. I used to... Take the train from Brooklyn when I was nine years old, probably, to uh, Yankee Stadium, which was a great experience. And you know, it's just part of the culture. But as music started to happen, I mean, obviously with the Beatles, which I think started most of rock players' careers in America, no let alone England. Um, I started to drift away from that, realizing I didn't belong in a square world. If you know what I
0: mean. Now. Now, what, what instrument did you first pick up, and, and was music around your household?
1: Well, nobody really played in, in my family at all. Uh, I think the radio was my teacher at first. My parents always played cool music growing up, so I was kind of influenced by blues, Lloyd Price or, you know, uh, Diana Washington, so they had good taste, which helped. But rock and roll, I was always attracted to. I was probably one of the only Brooklyn kids that liked the Beach Boys, you know. And there was actually a group, in, in, uh, around around the block or so, and they'd actually try to dress like them, which is pretty interesting, but it's kind of hard to sing like them. But um, you know, again, the uh, let's see how to, how to put that in perspective. Uh, there was so much of the music. I was actually one of the first shows they went to. Murray Kay had shows in Brooklyn on Blackish Avenue. And I probably saw a very early Stevie Wonder show, and Lonettes would build on it, the Bill Bells, and then the English uh, things started happening in in, uh, Brooklyn as well as all over the country. And uh, New York had great radio stations, too. You know, Scott Murrow, cousin Brucey, the all these cats, and it was an amazing education growing up, so to speak. I, I had to learn from a friend of mine uh, who I uh, used to go to the camp schools every summer, which was a real pleasure getting out of the city. And one, some guy knew Beatles chords, so of course I was uh, I was I learned as many as I could. But um, a couple of years later, I figured I needed to play something for real, and I figured I loved to sound the bass. You know, James Chamberson, Paul McCartney. I mean, to mention a couple that were on the airwaves, but um, I figured I didn't want to play with a guitar, because it was boring, and lead guitar took a long time to get good, base was coming into uh recognition and
0: you know i had to meet girls quick so I, started playing bass. I always love it it's so many so many musicians and even actors are like we had to meet girls and it's so true but i did mean, I, stand up comedy for years uh when i got out of college because it was a way you could meet girls and it, it didn't make a difference you know if you were real cool or not or if you're hip i mean everyone thought you were so cool and so hip because you were a performer
1: well, what's interesting was I was caught in, in a very interesting cultural thing in Brooklyn. There's all the Italian kids that I hung out with because they were really cool. And because I played baseball, they had the collegian guys with penny loafers and sweaters and like jock kind of thing, which I definitely didn't jive with, which is another reason I kind of uh, gave up my baseball scholarship and said, screw baseball. And so I had those two, and then when the music team came along with the dress of England the clothing, you know, the whole thing—that was where I belonged. And as I started to play and going to Fillmore East and, and smelling patchouli oil in the air, seeing uh, great fashion and great music, and it was really easy to, to shift gears and, and jump on board.
0: Now you're playing bass. Now, when do you decide this is what you're going to do with your life, and how do you get how do you get that started?
1: Well, I was one of those guys that didn't really have a five-year plan, you know, I mean, people, as you grow up, there used to be a new thing. Well, you gotta, you gotta plan the future, and we all know that's not so easy to do. You can get a general direction. I was gonna say, there was a a group in Brooklyn called Dust, and Kenny Aronson was the, uh, great bass player in that band. I mean, I was like 16, and I really hadn't started officially playing yet, you know, well, he's pretending to play well. And as and you know, became a great bass player with so many different people. And he was my first kind of like guy I looked up to because he was local. And uh, Mark Bell played drums, who actually I played with later on in the group. Mark Bell ended up joining the Ramones, you know. Uh, so that was like the immediate thing for me. I saw people right in, my, in Brooklyn who were really good. So that's when I started to uh, start playing around with local bands and getting a feel for actually playing. And bass... The more I played it, the more I realized a lot of bass players weren't particularly good. And I just figured I was going to make this, you know, I play guitar, but I figured this was going to be my uh, statement, so to
0: speak. Now, when did you meet Velvet Turner? Because you're the second person who I've talked to that knew him and somewhat, you know, Richard Lloyd from television was the other. When did you meet Velvet? what, What point of your career was that?
1: Great story, I gotta say. So, I was playing with this Bruce group in Brooklyn, and uh, we had one of the hot guitars. You know, each neighborhood had a hot guitarist, you know. And uh, when this these guys, uh I you didn't know what name he came down to audition this thing. <clears throat> he kind of looked like Jimmy, kind of dressed like Jimmy, but he was a six foot two version of Jimmy would always walked hunched over to try to make them look more like Jimmy. Anyway, we played together, and afterwards I said, you play a guitar, and he picked up a guitar and strummed some foxy Lady chords, which a lot of people in Brooklyn didn't play. So I said, okay, who is this guy? And I, I said, would we'll you get your clothes for him? He said, oh, I, got him, I knew Jimmy Hendrix, and you know. I said, sure, man, great, let's keep in touch. So uh, I, I kind of doubted his authenticity. <laughs> But as, as time went on, you know, we talked a bit. And then one day he called me and said he had tickets to see Jimi Hendrix on Thanksgiving Eve at the Philharmonic uh, Hall in, in New York. And so I'd go with him. And then we go to Jimmy's uh, birthday party afterwards. Well, seeing is believing. So I met him there, saw the concert. And three hours later, I'm standing in the Cheetah Club, uh, paralyzed to speak, speed because Jimmy was 10 feet away from me yeah you can well imagine
0: did, did you did you uh, get to talk to Jimmy at all or I mean I, I no mean...
1: no no that came a little later but the fact that Jake, velvet had credibility was, was astounding and after that um, Velvet really did know Jimmy on some casual level I guess Jimmy had given him a guitar and you know figured he was an honest musician who was trying to get it together so velvet and I started the band. I knew he knew Richard because Velvet knew some of the people in the village and that's when I started hanging out in, in the village, you know, uh, Greenwich Village at that time, you know, and I met Richard and a few other people and and all of a sudden we just started putting it together and, and because of Velvet, I not only got to meet Jimmy a couple of times, eventually I said hello, you know, it took a while, but um, you know, I went like to see concerts. I had seen him before I met Velvet at Kilmore. And with Elder, I saw him in Madison Square Garden and uh, one of these small clubs called the Salvation Club in Manhattan. And, and uh, yeah, I was actually with dog too, but that's another story. But I got to see Jimmy, and the fact that he knew knew Jimmy, I was able to get backstage to a lot of places because Elver could, you know, call up or you know, play his card so to speak. And uh, because of Elver I got to go uh, a lot of con- a lot of backdoor, show, you know, concerts that I would never have been able to get from the audience backstage, and that pretty much changed my life, because it showed me what went on backstage, uh, business-wise, romantic-wise, and uh, it was a lot of fun too, so, uh, and and, you know, Velbert, everybody calls him Velvet, but he's always reminded it's Velbert, and also he was third cousin of B.B. King, because you saw B.B. King at the Village Vanguard, and uh, They were talking about their mothers knowing somebody. So that's a credibility, right? Oh,
0: yeah, totally. No, no, you said Woodstock. Now, how old were you when you went to Woodstock? Because, you know, I've talked to to Stu Cook from Credence, who played Woodstock, but I haven't really talked to many people who've been to Woodstock. What was it like, and how old were you? Well, um, I was 18, and I uh, actually
1: graduated high school. I didn't show up too much last year, but I was pretty decent. I had some smarts. I used to go to the capitals every summer, so uh, I happened to go up there to hang out with some girls in the fair of mine and, and then we started noticing this advertisement for this Woodstock thing happening and I said, oh, mm, this sounds like a great thing and I said, we we got to go to this and I said, we didn't have any money. So I figured, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to get there? So we walked by you know, they had signs up in Sweep holes announcing who was playing and I had found a guitar case, an empty guitar case from this girl. I guess one of her former lovers left the guitar case there. So she gave it to me. And so we're looking on the street here you know told to see who's playing. And there's a band called Santana. And I said, you know who they are? And he goes, no. I said, why don't we say we're in Santana and we're hitch And we say we need to go to Woodstock. That's where I got it got so we went and started Hitching and we said, hey, we're playing, a, you know, I'm playing guitar. And, you know, I don't know who Santana was. So some guy drove his like as close as he could to Woodstock. How's that for a good start, right? <laughs> and I, I always wonder. this is the best part of the story, I always wondered if this guy, 40 years later, was telling people he's he drove got his fantastic hand the Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, back then you had to be creative, right? You had to finish. So anyway, we got there, and I had no idea. I would made any money, so I had a brainstorm idea. I was going to work there. So I signed up to do construction. I got there a the day before. You know, I figured I'd hammer some nails and, you know, get in for free, signed up, and, uh, hammered a few nails, and then I w- knew I was in, because I had a pass, and, uh, you know, I went into town that night, I met a girl, long story, she didn't charge me, which was really good, I was one of girls, and, um, um, went to some moving house, I found uh, actually a guild acoustic guitar sitting in a lobby which ended up staying with me all these years later, but I went back the next day and we jammed and it was insane getting in and we walked literally six miles, and then you know the rain started, but because I pretended to work there, I lost my friend in the process by the way, but because I pretended to work there, I actually was able to sleep somewhere, because I had no idea where I was going to sleep, no money, you know, um, velvet pants, blue boots, fringe jacket and, you know, I look pretty English, you know, so I figured I'd get by, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So basically because of that I was able to stay and be able to sleep somewhere and because I met people I was ended up getting uh security passes and I moved closer to the stage. So one of the highlights in my life was, you know, being twenty feet from the stage when My favorite band, Sly and the Who played. It was it was unbelievable. You know, back then you didn't take pictures, so you had to take it all in as best you could, and uh, and that was phenomenal. And and just being there and be able to go in and out, you you meet people. Anyway, the the uh, last day of it, you know, Jimmy didn't play, so I went to sleep expecting to go home and woke up and heard him playing and ran down the hill and, and you know you saw in the movie it was pretty empty everybody had left it was trash everywhere but I got to see Jimmy do his set and then I had a hitch home from uh, from upstate New York to Brooklyn.
0: So that was interesting. So, yeah, I mean, that's just so, crazy that you uh, got to see Jimmy play, and then you you, you met, met, basically met him later. Now, when did, um, I know you ended up, when did you leave New York?
1: Well, well here's, here's what happened, basically. So, um, uh, you know, that was in 69, okay, and here Michael Lang, he promoted Woodstock. And Belvedere and I had been playing around and everything, so I got a chance to go to California in the summer, uh, probably in June or July, uh, 1970. So I was in touch with Belvedere, and while I was there, we got the news that Jimi Hendrix passed away, which was devastating, you know, because Jimmy is one of those people you thought was like immortal. Uh, you know, I can't explain it. He had a he had a vibe. Uh, 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 Anora, if you want to call it. I can't explain it, but it was very powerful. So I think that was the first death that really affected myself, and especially Velvet, you know, being close to Jimmy. Um, so from that phone call, he called me the next day and said there were people interested in maybe signing Velvet. So I flew back to New York. Uh, we stayed in the hotel. We cut a demo. And the next thing you know is you got a $100,000 record deal with Gulf and Western. Uh, figuring that Velvet was maybe the next Jimmy. And we signed the deal in Woodstock, New York, with Michael Lang. who just started a record label. I mean, how, how could you plan that, right?
0: I know, it's crazy.
1: It, it's nuts. And then we got uh, a chance to go to California, you know, because uh, the producer we got was Tom Wilson. I didn't know who he was at the time, but I'm sure, you know, he worked with, you know, uh, Velvet Underground and, and uh, Bob Dylan. Simon the Golf Uncle of of he was a genius and we got this advance and we came to California to do an album and I uh, had a great engineer at plant, and um, you know anybody that's trying to fill Jimmy Shade you know that's a lot of pressure isn't it
0: oh yeah it's a legend
1: it's a legend so as we came out here we started to do that and did, did most of an album and then we found out that we had to recut some songs and somebody else got involved and and finishing, the only reason I'm bringing this up, I'll tie I'll tie the list down them together. So we got this other guy from Family Productions, Artie Rick, who actually had Jimmy, actually had Billy Joel, uh, rehearsing in the same uh, managing studio we were in you now. So I got to hear early Billy Joel under lock and Is <laughs> as the as the story goes, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, but he was brilliant. I, I knew back then he, he was a great writer. So anyway, the thing with Velvet was falling apart. We finished this album with the uh, Family Productions, and at that point, I just figured that's over, and I got a chance to start traveling. Well, let me throw this in. So in the last month or two, I got I got in touch with those people, Audie Rip and Family Productions, and they're re-releasing the album on vinyl on Record Day on uh, November twenty-eighth. And I think it's astounding that they're reissuing it on vinyl. and The fact that uh, people are going to hear it fresh for the first time—you know—they were—they were, they were doing—they were releasing on some offbeat record labels in Europe for the last few years. But the fact that it's going to be. Out there. it's really wonderful, you know, for Velvet's family and the first album I did, which really got me into the business. So I want you all to go out and listen to it, all right?
0: Oh yeah, so then that's great. I, I love the fact that vinyl's coming back because you know vinyl somewhat disappeared. It's so funny. I'm I'm 55. When I talk to all my friends, everyone's like, "Yeah, I got my records in a garage somewhere. that are probably warped, and it really sucks because yeah. no one was collect, no one was keeping their records. And now, you know, I went to a like a little, there's a little record store that I actually. Just closed around the corner for me, and they wanted like some outrageous price for like Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. And I remember in high school, you know, we'd clean our pot on Dark Side of the Moon because it opened up and you could use your uh, a uh, index card and the seeds ro- <laughs> would roll down. And now, exactly. They,
1: yeah, and now they want like
0: twenty five bucks for twenty two bucks, and I'm like, that's bullshit.
1: <laughs> well, it's unbelievable the records I gave away. Probably thinking, you know, who cares, right? Right. <laughs> um, I still have a lot of a lot of records, but uh, but it's amazing that at this particular time in my life, anyway, that that album is getting. You know, people are going to get. It sounds kind of like Jimmy. And I write a couple of songs in there. Which showed my uh, my skills as a bass player. At least back then, I, I guess I could play, you know. And yeah. I still have that tender bass that I played on that album. By the way, uh, it's it's pretty cool a thing. But anyway, just to go back to your point, after I uh, finished playing with Belgrade in LA, I did I played with Arthur Lee for a short time. and Did a TV show with him. You know, uh, you know Arthur Lee from Love, right? Yeah. You know, he went nuts during that time period, so it didn't last too long. And, uh, you know what, I got a chance to go to, I figured anybody gives me a ticket to go anywhere, I'll go as long as it's last trips trip, so I got a chance to go to Boston to play with somebody. And the great thing in Boston at that time was Iris Smith was just starting, the Modern Lovers were playing, um, and I met some great musicians at that time, Boston was really a good thing, though, you know? Right. This is like 71. And, uh, going into 72, so I was there for six months, and next person came into my life was an American guitar player named Jeffrey Mitchell, a great songwriter and guitarist, and I got a chance to go to England, another round trip ticket, I went to England and lived there for almost two years, believe it or not, and uh, the glam rock thing was happening in England, so I got to experience that firsthand, you
0: know. Now, now you're in England, are, are you in a band in England, or are you you, you just, are you being like a session musician, what are you doing in England?
1: Well, I went over to England to put a group together with uh, Jeffrey Mitchell, it's called JM Hollywood or something, and we, uh, our manager was uh, uh, Jamie Granger, his father was an English actor, Stuart Granger, so he had some clout, his girlfriend ran out model agency. And you know I was happy to be there right, right. <laughs> because I was like oh my god this is heaven but uh, we got we had a bathroom, we lived in a country house we did a few shows and um, but in the course of living there I got to be uh, friends with Rose Taylor Rose Taylor is Mick Taylor's wife and because of that meeting her I got my journal to actually know I didn't make this up I met Mick Taylor and actually got to jam with him a few times and um you know, he played chess and I was into chess and he was in the other was kind of slowed down a chess game for days, you know. <laughs> but, uh, for those people that know what I'm talking about, but because of Nick, I kind of, I was able to meet Ronnie Wood, um, because of Rose, rather, I met Ronnie Wood and different people. I went to his house at the Wig. and met, uh, uh there used to be a club called, traps uh, in London uh, where all these cool musicians went. Nobody played, but they hung out and I got to, I uh, danced with George Harrison, believe it or not. Uh, and I was dating a girl that worked with uh, Derrick Taylor, who's a uh, press secretary. And anyway, so I got to meet George. And, and all these great music was coming out of London at the time. I mean, nobody knew who I was. And I always felt like, you know, I wanted to be somebody they knew. I didn't want to just be a hang because I just loved the music. I didn't care about hanging around. I just wanted to play with people. I met Jeff Beck and... I actually jammed with him at my Jeffrey's birthday party. Long story, but I met a lot of people there. Anyway, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? To be uh, on, a, on a round trip ticket to end up somewhere,
0: you know? Yeah. So, so your round trip ticket. Now, when when do you decide to leave?
1: Okay. What happened was it fell apart. Um, Jeffrey went back to America. Now, uh, earlier on, uh, we came back in, in uh, a few months earlier with Jeffrey to audition drummers in L.A we weren't happy with English drummers at the time. Even though we did play with Mitch Mitchell, but at that time Mitch was um, wasn't physically well. So it was very disappointing, you know? And then we asked also to play with Paul Whaley from Blue Cheer. He definitely wasn't well at the time. <laughs> so, I mean, he was just in that period. But we auditioned this gentleman named Bruce Gary, and we wanted him to come back to England to play with us. Instead, he went back to play with Jack Bruce and Mick Taylor and this new band that was happening, you know? So that's how I met Bruce originally. So anyway, I came back to L.A. when things fell apart. I went to City College and started studying Classical Piano. And um, I met this uh, Italian professor of music who became a dear friend, and he taught me... Uh, a lot, you know, I really gravitated to classical music, so I was doing that as well as playing. And, and uh, Bruce, you know, had actually got me back in minute, because I came back to play with him in a show somewhere, Anyway, long story, but Bruce ended up, just uh, thing with jazz. Bruce ended up, he came back to LA and started playing with Bruce, uh, with uh, Doug, Trager and Bert Nevere in a project they were doing, and one day I got a call, and they wanted to put a real group together, and Bruce recommended me that kind of looked like what and I could like that whistle, like you know? And <laughs> which is, I guess, a good compliment. And uh, so that, that that's, because of Bruce, that really got the knack going, you know? And that, and we did our first official show on June 1st, 1978.
0: Now, you did the first show. You get the knack together. Um, what sound were you guys looking for when you got together? Did you have a certain sound? In mind, or what, what? What were you trying to capture when you were a new band?
1: Well, it's interesting, you know. We, uh, you know, because uh, Doug and Bird and Bruce did some demos, and believe it or not, capital turned them down on Good Girls Don't. It was, it, it wasn't really a sound yet. Now, Bruce is a, an amazing drummer, as you've seen or heard as well. And you know, he played. I used to jam with him on like progressive music. He can beat Billy Cobb and stuff. But he was a great pop drummer. He could be simple like Ringo, he could be Keith Moon. So as we started rehearsing, the early songs we did phased out, and a lot of the songs ended up in Get Gecklenack, like Let Me Out and uh, Otara, Selfish was one of my favorites, of course Sharona, all started to come as the band started playing in town. So the sound kind of evolved. Um, My Fender bass, which was a brilliant bass, and my Gibson bass was great. But I had this guild bass I had gotten, it looked like a Les Paul, and I was playing out of a Marshall guitar amp, and then I ended up getting the sound of the, of the bass, and it worked well with Bruce's drums. So I think by playing a lot of shows, two, night, you know, two gigs a night stuff, we started getting a reputation in the latest, having this power pop sound, you know?
0: Now, you're getting a reputation, uh, are, are the record companies starting to recognize you?
1: We started you at the beginning. There's somebody named Bruce Weber at Capitol. He was one of the first guys to come down uh, and see us and kinda of got Capitol Records interested. But I think for us is when uh, because of the camaraderie we had, I think because of Bruce, our drummer, we started having people sit in with us. So when we played the star with Eddie Money sat in with us and we did two tickets to paradise with him, which was which, which is incredible. We when we did the Troubadour we topped Eddie Jam with us. And we did uh, Mona and uh, Not Fade Away, which was wonderful. And then uh, Bruce had known Bruce Springsteen, our drummer and Bruce Springsteen. We called him out of the audience and he did a few songs with us. And then after that, it was Steven Stills, jam with us, Man Garrett. So it's the funny thing that we became this band that had celebrities jam with us. Nobody in he was doing that. It wasn't a formula. That we were good musicians, and I think people really dug that. So I think that really got the record our company's attention big time. That we were kind of
0: acceptable to other people, you know. Okay, so you got that. You got that going for you now. Now, when do you get that deal? When do you get your first
1: deal? Well, it, 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 at that time, it was really cool. A lot of record companies were interested, like Polygram, which was throwing, like, you know, a million dollars away. And, you know, that, you know, if you, the more money you take, the more money you owe, right? And, and you know, nobody knew what was, if we were going to have it, a hit album or a hit single. Um, and Capital was always interested, and we got other offers, too. But when we talked about getting a producer, you know, in a preliminary meeting with Capital, for some reason Mike Chapman kept coming up you know he was working with Blondie at the time he'd written a lot of great pop songs with Sweet you know uh, Suzy Quattro and you know worked with a lot of people you know later on so as soon as Mike came and heard his play he loved it he said listen I'm on board he said you got a number one song I, I go we do? <laughs> now Capital didn't know this, that Mike, Mike says in the beginning he thought Mike, Mike was smash right so with Mike Chapman on board, um, and knowing how he wanted to record us, which is pretty much live, um, we, went, we decided on Capitol because they were um, really committed. The whole company was behind us, and we didn't need a large advance. We just wanted to get the album done. So we went into a studio called Whitney Studios in, in Glendale. Blondie was recording Art of Glass down the hallway, and Mike was working with us. And we, uh, Sharona was actually done in one take, except for minor love, in guitar and vocals. So when people, people say to me, we're one hit wonders, I like to say we're one take wonders. Because <laughs> uh. I always value the musicianship, because that to me was the best thing about the band. And we finished the album, we finished Nick thing, and Blondie was still working on Hard Glass, which uh, doesn't take away the brilliance of the song, but it showed how fast he worked. And, um, you know, Mike really felt that Sharona was the, the hit single. And and, uh, and then we started to tour Europe, we got back got back to L.A., uh, and then we went out to Europe again briefly, and uh, the album was released, and uh, actually Radio picked the single. Because Capital didn't release the single, it just released the album. So, uh, Sharona became the most requested song in America, and uh mike was right and we had a rush release torona so the album the number one person then the single followed amazingly no and, and we kill, and, and then we killed disco as, as they called they said to us did the documentary about disco and it says we, we killed disco
0: and i guess that's good isn't it Yeah, exactly. Well, now, now, what was it like as this album is hitting number one? Because, you know, you you were a journeyman before that. You weren't bands that didn't work. You were just, you were all about the music. You learned classical piano. So you're someone who loved the craft. But what is it when all of a sudden your album just starts blowing up? Because that album was everywhere. My Sharona was everywhere. You know, you couldn't turn a station on without hearing it. You know, flip around, you'd hear it. What is that like from your view, uh, perspective?
1: Well, the, sad, the saddest thing was, and when the album came out, we, had, we had went on tour, went to Australia, New Zealand, we went back to Europe, and we and unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to, uh, to bathe in that stardom initially. Honestly, it was the strangest thing. We were getting reports from LA what was going on, and, you know, Billboard charts. And I get, you know, remember back in the day when they had voice machines, right? Yeah. You know, when you had a, you know, like whatever they were called, right? So you had a call in from Europe to get your messages. So it started out with people saying, hey, I uh, heard you're the uh, radio, congratulations. And then some people were calling, especially girls, and going, hey, how come you're not calling me back, you asshole? You're saying that the, you don't care about me anymore? This is within two weeks, right? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't afford to call L.A. I, you know, we weren't making any money. So the first, anyway, the first time I actually heard a Mac song was in Liverpool because we were playing Eric's Cabin, which was, you know, the original cabin Club, and we were in a pub and we heard Great Girls on the Radio.
0: How's that for a, a, a trip, right? No, How'd you make that feel when you heard it? Did you like almost fall off your <laughs> it, uh, booth? It was, it was surrealistic. Everybody talks about that because you're
1: working all your life to get to a point, and you're there, and you're listening to your song in Liverpool, not just in America. You I go, mean, "What the hell?" You know. And uh, it was astounding. It, it was it was to be coming back to L. A. with the song, you know, on the charts and, and every week jumping up twenty points. Was, was incredible. It was a great rush. And then we came back to L.A. and we did uh, a couple of shows in L.A. before we did a U.S. tour. So we never really got a chance to, um, I guess, walk down the street and get mugged.
0: You know what I mean? <laughs> now, you said, and you, did, you, you said you did a U.S. tour. Now, you only had one album at that time. So were you headlining or were you opening for someone? Or what was your tour? Where were you playing?
1: Well, before, before we did that, we did some shows uh, before the album came out, we actually opened for the police which was really cool up in San Francisco and I got to hear them for the first time and like, you know I, they're great, you know, to this day I, I mean a three piece, I could do that, right? Right. I mean, you know I love them and we opened for them, we opened for Dire Straits in Paris and, and also yeah, Ian Drew, remember that? With me, with your rhythm
0: stick. Yeah, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll.
1: Yeah, so we, we opened for a couple of different people, but uh, when the album became such a hit, we basically headlined the U.S. tour. We did small venues, you know, pretty much, you know, two, three thousand tiers. We played Carnegie Hall, which, you know, if we keep growing up in Brooklyn, we mean, unheard
0: of, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's like, so, so you're playing, your album's hitting the top of the charts. Is your life changing at all?
1: Yeah, um, well, again, I'm pretty much out of town, but um, I will digress for a minute, I had a younger brother who never really found his way, and um, he started to become, he thought he was a tough guy, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, the Sertese movies,
2: <laughs> right?
1: you know what I mean, he started to, you know, he a a kid, he started to build himself up, and started hanging around with the wrong people in Manhattan. And uh, so, in a way, I wasn't around him very much, even though we were good friends. So, I haven't really talked about it very much, but during my U.S. tour, um, after we came to the West Coast, we um, played in San Diego, and my uncle came to the show, and I don't know why he was there, but I ended up knowing that my brother was actually, uh, uh, I had used the word killed, while I was touring. And I haven't shared that with many people, but you can, so in other words, you're at the top of the world, right? And you have to deal with something. You know, I hadn't seen him all that much, so it wasn't like, but we had talked a lot about changing his life and working for the band at some point. I always really hoped you could do that, but you know, you make enemies when you're a tough guy, you know? Right. And something happened, so I, I couldn't come back to the funeral. I had to sit on that, finish the tour, you know, get it, you know, find a house and do everything you're supposed to do when you're making money. But, um, it was the strangest feeling in the world to carry that around and, and somehow not be in denial, but somehow accept it and wonder why the pinnacle of your success you've got to deal with it you know, tragedy you now. So I haven't really shared that very much. So, so, you know, my faith, my faith had a lot to do with it, my ability to compartmentalize, uh, Life and knowing that my brother Wesley was always walking up in line, you know. Right. And um, so I did go back to New York after the tour was over, spent some time with my parents a little bit, going to Max's, Kansas City, because I used to go there all the time when I was in New York, and at least going there and somebody recognized me for the first time. Right. (laughs) And then I went back to LA to start the Ilse, the second album. So that, when you asked me how my life had changed, uh, uh, most of it was all good and all in the upswing, and I was enjoying the feeling of you know having a successful group. And, but you know the the, the sadness, uh, I think, is part of anybody that believes you know. And I just had to balance that with what was happening. If that make sense? Yeah,
0: so so that's, you know, you're going through it up and down, and now you said you had to go back to do the second album. Now, was, album. was there a lot of pressure on you guys? Because the first album, I mean, the first album was huge. It's funny, I just listened to it the other day, because it's just, it's such a great album. And uh, so, you know, you're coming off that where, you know, people just knew it they sang it, I mean, as I said earlier, My Sharona was giant, Good Girls Don't, the whole album's great, so you get that done, now, what what is your guys' uh, philosophy going back into the studio for the second album?
1: Well, this is when stupidity started to enter the, uh, the framework of the bands, you know, I mean, if I can say that with, um, and that's even understating it, the fact that we didn't do any American television I mean, we were off at Doug Kirsten's rock concert. We were off at Midnight you know, Special. We were off at all these things, but because the success was so quick that our manager and Doug, um, let's say, didn't decide on the things you should do. They said, ah, you know, we don't want to do these kind of rock shows, you know, or something. There was an elitism that came into which I did not understand for the life in it. And uh, we were offered, like, Time Magazine to be in a cover with a few other bands, and the manager vetoed it. We were offered to be on Morgan Mindy. Can you imagine that?
0: I think that'd be amazing.
1: That <laughs> changed my life. But uh, for some reason, that wasn't good enough. Dick Clark, I mean, this is one of my biggest regrets, I think, if I'm to be honest. You know, Dick Clark not only wanted to be an American band fan, but he actually wanted to do a movie around this. Because we were, Beatles, people compared us to the Beatles, which which is the dumbest thing in the world because we didn't sound like them. I know we still look in Capitol, but, you know, any, any in mean, the right mind, the last thing they ever want to be is compared to the Beatles, you know, of course, right? I mean, you can't, and we only had one singer, so how do you even, right? How do you even go there? We right. sounded more like the Who Live, you know? But, um, um, you know, so Dick Clark, he got a script sent to us, because we had so many authors that we didn't do American bands at. Dick Clark, who was being gracious, uh, everybody's household in America. So people knew of us, but nobody saw us, and we were good bands. We did good interviews, we were funny. Everybody was kind of unique, and we were kind of goofy, too, and intelligent, but nobody got to know us, and all they knew was the one picture, the album cover, believe it or not. And that was really the start of our undoing. Because we came back to L.A., we could have easily released two or three other singles. My Chapman, you know, to this day talks about that. And because Doug was fearless at the time, I don't know why, he felt like, hey, we got enough material to do a second album, even though he said that we had enough to do a double first album, which really was invented by him. We only did a single first album. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, for some reason... Doug sell, we're just gonna go in and do another album. And um, to this day the biggest mistake Doug made, I think personally and, and the capital to a degree following along with it, is underestimating a song like Sharona, you just don't put out, you know, an album and have a single that, that, you know, is not better than that, you know. That that ended up being the albatross because if we really like most people would have made us wait a nuke the album, not put out an album that's not going to compare, right? Make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. So we went in with Mike Chapman. Mike was going through a divorce at the time, unfortunately. And he wasn't the same Mike Chapman. And I knew, I knew in my heart, you know, let alone still in with some grief, that this was wrong, you know. And, um, you know, on the tour bus, I had an argument with Doug and the manager because they wanted, you know, they had written Baby Talks Dirty. so they with that song? Yeah. Well, you know, that song would go over real well today, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that lyric, my baby said, hurt me, hurt me, you know. And others sort of say the masochistic lyrics. At the time, I was against that, you know. I mean, you got away with it, Sharona. And I said, look, you know, Doug always wanted to be the Beatles and the Stones. So you can't be both. You know, he, he does not Nick Jagger or even Tyler, you know, if you're going to sing a sexy lyric, you got to be those guys, right? That's always been my my thought. Doug was a great band member and a, and a great brother but you know, to take on a lyric that's, you know, on the borderline, I was really against it. And Mike didn't really speak up about it much. anyway, anyways, it ended up the song was banned in, in England. They didn't play it on the radio because of the lyric. How's that?
0: That's, that's, um, that's nuts. I mean, it's just, you know, you don't, we don't think about that, like, banning you know, songs, and it's just, it happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had to make a change to Good Girls' Down 2 in Canada. They didn't want to play a, a very, one of the prized the, lights in the song about sitting on my face or something, right? Right. Which, <laughs> which I think is a throwaway, right? I don't think it's a piece of art, but, you know, it's not James Joyce, but uh, for some reason, uh, some of the additions, uh, they, they took it out. But anyway, here we are starting the album, we're running through it, the vibes were, and that's when uh, Yoko. Oh, I'm sorry, Sharona came in with the picture because uh, Doug had been in love with Sharona. For, I mean, in lust with Sharona, and she was never with Doug because she had a boyfriend. For all that, when Doug wrote Sharona, you know, and he, he had a crush on her. So when the tour ended, when we after getting back to Hawaii, before we did the American tour, they started getting together. And when we started to do the second album, Sean was like coming to the studio, and Doug would be more singing the hug than being in the band. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, yeah. And it, I, I, I. I really like John Lennon, I think he was taking on some of the characteristics, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and Sharona was in the studio, you know, she's one, she's a great young girl, she's great, but it ended up starting, he fashioned off a bit, I don't know why, and, and the, the, uh, they covered the second album with a strange picture of Sharona in a crowd somewhere, and, they used that, which wasn't... Band on the inside was great, but not on the cover, and the capital wasn't really behind it as much. I found that later. So that was more an effort of aggression, putting that album out. I don't think anybody really wanted it, and I don't know why it really came out, because everybody's going to compare it to Get the math right? In Sharona. So, anyway, instead of being in California and playing TV shows to promote the album, we are in Japan again, playing Budokan... Et cetera. But here's the other thing I got to throw in: we got two Grammy nominations, right? And you know, best song and best new band, you know. Right. And um, I bring this up because there's a reason why we we ended up dropping the ball. It wasn't because of artistic or playing ability. It, you know, there's in, in during the Jewish uh, you know service, they talk about sins of uh, commission and omission. I know you're gonna love this theology, but omission <laughs> means things you know you fucked up on, omission means things you didn't know what you did. There were so many things that were done that we should that we should have done and not done. Like we had we had two Grammy nominations, and if we played the Grammys, we would have sold another million albums, you know, because we're a great live band. Somehow we ended up in Japan doing an no the tour. We shouldn't have been there, and we're not at the Grammys. We lost that. And we didn't do American TV for the second album. So the album came out at 14. And then because Baby Talks 3, nobody was excited about it. That did us in. You know, it's like giving the execution of the ammo to shoot you, you know?
0: Right, well, you know what's crazy, though? You think about it. I mean, I know the the album still went gold, which is, you know, most people would it consider did. it a success because your album, first album, was so big, probably where people that were disappointed, but it was still a damn gold record.
1: Well, I, have, I have gold records on my wall as we speak. And I'm, I, I argue with people. I, I tell them when they say I really like the second album and I'm such a goofball, I go, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, I said there's good songs on there, but the, um, the, the production and even the vocal sound and the drum sound is not as good as on the first album. Mike, is not, Mike was rushed to do it. And I think Mike wouldn't have allowed certain things to pass, you know. And um, I like some of the songs on there. But uh, I really think, again, we, we actually did a video, too, that didn't have MTV then, obviously. Nobody even got a chance to see the video of Baby Talk" 30 or I Want You. So as, as much as I had hoped the album would do well, I knew at that point it was dropping. And we came back to L.A. and it was just like, you know... It's, in a short period of time, you go from being on top of the world to personally feeling like you failed,
0: you know? Now, was did that cause... Uh, str- not stress, I can't find the word. Uh, resentment or any feelings between the band? Were you, you know, was it yeah, something that you were, well, you guys were always, pissed?
1: Yeah, it was always that. Well, first of all, Doug used to always say, screw the critics, which is normally the case. But because we we didn't do the things we should have done in the business as well. Show up. If we went to the Grammys and hobnob with the people, it would have been far better, you know. Uh, we didn't, which, again, I cannot understand for, for my manager and Doug being narcissists. I mean, you all have to be narcissists to be in the business, but how do you not go to the Grammys, right? <laughs> damn, you know? But uh, so I, I think the critics who were really the a-holes at first it, we, it validated their cr- criticism. Uh, you know, one hit, the second album doesn't compare. So we gave them the reason to validate their criticisms. And I really I was angry about that because it didn't have to happen that way, but it did. And uh, yes, there was friction in the band because uh, I, I think Doug, you know, uh, I, I, I gave a quote that we were successful because of Doug and in spite of Doug because um, he was very talented, but I think he had a chip on his shoulder, and that chip on his shoulder alienated some people, and as a result, there was friction in the band. Bruce and Doug used to have more arguments, because Bruce you know, had been a session drummer and played with a lot of top acts, and I think he was getting really unnerved by what was happening, you know? uh, collectively, and the manager, too. So we, we broke up uh, at, at one point, you know, we just again, so to speak, and that was it. Um, when, when John Lennon passed away, uh, somehow, you know, I, have been talking to Doug on and off, kind of, and I think that I brought people back to a, a real soft spot, you know, I mean, uh, emotionally vulnerable, and I remember going to see Doug, and, uh, was, you know, in December or something, anyway, and we talked, look, let's get back together, you know, this is ridiculous, why are we, we, we're not, we're going to put our own band together for, Burton and, and uh, uh, Bruce. And then we decided because of that we're going to get back together, you know, which was great. And then we tried to figure out what producer we wanted and we decided on Jack Douglas. You know, he had finished doing the Lennon album and he was available in New York and, you know, we thought of Jimmy Iovine I think he was working with Tom Betty pretty much, you know. And uh, so we, Jack Douglas was one of the first albums he worked on after John Lennon. And um, has that for an interesting uh, segue, yeah. right? And
0: then that's that's the album Round Trip.
1: Yeah, and um, he was still dealing with some of the legal things with Yoko. And the good thing is, in the studio, he did play us some conversation tapes from the studio. It was sworn to secrecy. He can never. <laughs> but uh, you know, he was saying John was really getting ready to go do a rock and roll tour, and he was excited. And, so he was still, he was still, you know, broken hearted over the whole thing, but he did it, It's the best out, Get the Knack is unique because it's brilliant for what it is, but Round Trip um, had brilliant, the sound, the drum sound, bass sound, everything, we, we were experimental, we did different genres and music, You just see jazz, rock, some funk, it, it, it's amazing, it showed our real talent, and Jack was phenomenal, and I really thought we were going to have a smash, and uh, Capital picked the least likely song as the single, a country ballad that Burton wrote. I had no idea why the Knack would come out with a country ballad, a song called Pay the Devil, right? <laughs> and uh, that's Pay the Devil is due. How's that for an ironic <laughs> lyric, right? <laughs> and Capital picked that, so of course it didn't go anywhere, and the album, we got a lot of good reviews on it, and then, you know. um you know we spent a lot of money on the album because the track schedule long story and and then it was like what the hell we played in new york we did a small tour and we played great and everything we added a fifth member temporarily to do keyboards and extra guitar but um after that bruce quit and uh we didn't go to south america and we broke up and that was the end of the capital era so uh, that album was unfortunately was deserving of something but you know, again, bad business decisions and, you know, stuff happens, right?
0: So so you so break up. Was, so you break up. Now, what are you going to do?
1: Well, yeah. uh, at that time, I was lucky enough because uh, in L.A. there was somebody named Josie Cotton. Do you know Josie's uh, uh, pop singer? Right. She had that song, Johnny, Are You Queer? He could be the one, right? Right. So uh, I joined up with her, and she was playing... And, I did a bunch of TV, it's funny, I did five TV shows with her, and none with a nap in America. I did a lot of stuff in Japan and Europe, five TV shows. And, um, she was cool, and we ended up doing Valley Girl, I'm in that movie Valley Girl, actually, playing with her. With a rockabilly haircut, and, uh, a box space. Yeah, we did, uh, which now become an iconic movie, it's funny, how life works, you know. So I joined her for a while and toured, and, um... Anyway, got back together with an act, somehow things lead back to somewhere. We did another group too with Burton and Bruce. We got did a group called The Front and I lead sing with Stephen Valley, the actor.
0: Okay, yeah, I I I, 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 I <laughs> Stephen, yeah, I, I ran into him, it's so funny. I ran into him a uh, bar in Burbank, God it must have been six years ago. And I'm sitting there, and because it's LA, you see people all the time, and I'm thinking, is that Stephen Bauer? And I had a hat on, and he said I remind him of his uh, first Jewish agent, Morty Mortensen. Oh, okay, God, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, you with me? Yeah. It's
1: funny, so Stephen Bauer looks great, right? Yeah. He likes and too, but he really couldn't sing that well. So we, we started to put that together and uh, we were going to probably sign with Virgin Records, but uh, our manager at the time got arrested okay. because um, I guess he would have some weird shit going on in L.A. We didn't know, you know. I guess I should have known that his, his, his bodyguard had a machine gun, right? <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn right I was around mafia people, so I should have known, right? Uh, anyway, so that thing broke up and... A couple of years later we got back together for a benefit concert with Bruce and you know and it worked for a little while you know and uh we did some demos with Val Garay and then you know things happened and that didn't work and then uh Bruce split and we decided we're going to play without Bruce and then we got a chance to uh Don was with a good friend of dogs uh from Detroit and uh uh, Charisma Records were an offshoot of version and they wanted to sign a, a knack we had the demos from Val the Way Sessions and we got a chance to do another album and John was produced us and you know and Billy Ward plays drum by the way
0: now now, how did that album were you happy with that album Well, oh, I thought it was well produced
1: I, I thought you know um, Doug was trying to be more vocally athletic and I think, you know, more heavy, heavy rock sounding. You know, I think um, there were groups out there that would, you know, more of a heavy uh, metal dance. Burton could play great. He could play anything, right? Billy's a great drummer. And some of the songs on that album I really liked, you know, uh, very much. And we actually had a good manager, uh, Bud Greger, partnership. We had a guy uh, Bud Greger managed. He was doing night ranges at the time. He managed mountain and a lot of people in the business, and uh, I thought we had a shot, you know, and Rocket of Love was on that album, and it got top ten FM airplay. I don't know if you've heard that song. No. Uh, Rocket of Love, there's actually a video, too. Well, what's wrong with you? You can do your research. I, <laughs> I
0: did my research. I'm kidding. I know.
1: But, but anyway, it, it, um, it charted, and we were going to cross over. We did a video, but unfortunately, Charisma Records folded, and such as life and uh, we didn't get a chance for the album, you know, to really get sold the right way, you know.
0: Now so and, is is that the end of the knack then?
1: Well, that was the end of the knack with Billy Ward. Now we toured which was great, and also the fact that uh reality bites came out uh, at that time in the Hedge Verona featured in that movie. Uh, Do uh, you ever see that movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's a great scene in the movie, so we got a tour out of it. Now, it's funny, because at that time, uh, Tarantino got, was interested in using Sharona in Pulp Fiction. However, the scene it would be used in was the rape scene with the uh, Yahoo boys, right? Right. So I think we chose wisely if doing reality bites. Don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's,
0: that's something that,
1: yeah. <laughs> I don't want to think your with that damn thing happening, you know?
0: <laughs> Would have changed the movie so completely.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's one good decision, okay? <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you. So anyway, uh, so we, we did the tour off of that movie, which was great. and uh, And I guess... Then something happened, and that ended up breaking up and went through other things. And then we got back together again and decided we are going to play L.A. again with Bruce. Tried it. Um, Doug was going to do a solo album, but the album wasn't that good. We got a new manager named Danny Sugarman, who, as you know, was a writer. And uh, wrote, he worked for The Doors, you know? Right. And he was involved, and his girlfriend was Fawn Hall. Remember her? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a trip. So, um so he was involved we ended up writing together I, I wrote a couple of songs in that record and before we were going to do it Bruce was dissatisfied and wanted some business changes So Bruce quit and then we that's how we found Terry Bozio of all people who want to play with the map. can you believe that?
0: I, yeah it's crazy.
1: It was like really I mean okay if you wanted Terry really wanted to do it so he went in we cut a bunch of songs with him. Uh, some of the albums, some came out of Rhino's greatest hit. Uh, some did some extra songs. But Jerry played with us, and then we were going to do a tour. But uh, Rhino Records were not good at promoting a new album, we found out. And then we uh, did half the tour. Jerry kind of got sick and just said, screw this, you know. So uh, that's what happened to the Zoom album. It's a pretty good album, I think, songwriting wise, you know. Right. And it got us something. And, you know, that kind of fell apart, and they did a video of us playing called Rock and Roll Fun House or something. I mean, we, you know, we never stopped playing, in other words. We always did stuff, and I don't want to bore you with all these, these things, you know, because it's a, it's a long story, but we ended up getting back together again with Image Records. We did an album called Was the Next Guy, which had a weird cover, but there were a couple of good songs. We had different drummer at that time. Actually, Pat Torpy was playing with us for a short time, and then he joined Mr. Big, who was that brilliant band with Billy Shane, you know? Right. And uh, then Pat came back to us and ended up playing the last five years with us uh, while Doug was fighting cancer, you know? And uh, he was brilliant, but we got back together, we did that album, we did some touring every now and then, and um, I, and then there was a, a live album that came out, Omnivore put it together, so pretty much when Doug found out about his cancer, um, after we played the Hard Rock, then uh, he was fighting that the last couple of years of us. So we go out and play, we did some recording, and he was very valiant and courageous, doing the best he could, and we never got a chance to do our, our tour of L.A., like, like anniversary tour, you know, to, to kind of stitch it all together, you know.
2: Right.
1: And uh, so Doug Tast in 2010, and Burton really had no interest, and in, he, he writes musicals. He's very talented, and uh, I don't think he wanted to do it. So I've, been, I've done some things on YouTube. You can watch me and my kids work. My son's a brilliant drummer. He's playing since he's two. But my daughter, anyway, it's really strange how life works. I never knew I'd have kids. Right. I always thought I was, I always thought I was shooting blanks, you <laughs> No, I because mean, my mom was on some weird experimental drugs they gave women <laughs> in the 1950s, and no, no girl ever came after me to see me for <laughs> knocking her off. So I logically figured, you know, I couldn't do it, right? Makes sense? <laughs> it totally makes sense. I figured I was blessed and cursed at the same time, right? Um... But as it turned out, uh, I got married, which was a leap, and I was blessed. Uh, The marriage had problems, but I was blessed with three kids, two sons and a daughter. And uh, I've always played with them through the years. There's a lot of clips on YouTube of me playing Sharona with my daughter, Liv, and son, Gabe, and some with Noah, with Nelson singing with us, with different, different things. We've done it. And the night Doug passed away, actually, we were at a club somewhere, and we... Did a tribute to Doug on February fourteenth, twenty ten. Lace Garrett actually sang on with us. And so, um, in a way, we, the Nash music because I played it with them, uh, it's relevant, and I've been often many many occasions to put something together to do to do that justice to the NAC and I will. You know, I'm playing with Missing Persons now, and I've been doing it for a number of years, which is fun. I like the music, you know.
0: Now, now, did you get that? But did you get Missing Persons because Terry was, in, Terry was in the band and you got to know Dale that way, or how'd that come about?
1: No, not, not at all. I've known, I met Dale many years ago, which was modeling. I never, uh, before I was Missing Persons, you know. So uh, we do shows together, and when um, I was done with the Nats, so to speak, we, uh, we just met one day, and she said, hey, why don't you play with me? And I said, sure, why not? So that's how that came about. And I started doing some shows with her, and I like the music very much. Terry doesn't talk to her anymore, so there's no, you know, there's nothing happening there, you know? Right. That, and I never talked to Terry even about that, believe it or not. But I started playing with her, and we played with a lot of 80s bands, and I used to play with the Knack, and I really got um, nostalgic, because uh, the Knack was so, you know, we not only did we were headlining some of the shows, not that it's all ego, but you know, a lot of the bands that played with us, I really felt bad that I couldn't go out there and sell the Mac music because we do have a number of albums, you know? And um, I'm probably gonna do Sharon. I just started playing with Gary Myrick and the figures. They're back together now. And uh, Gary wants to maybe do Chiron in the set, which is great, you
0: know? Now, you're still playing, you're touring, you're playing music, but I gotta know, I want you to tell me the story about george harrison
1: oh george yeah okay <laughs> well this is interesting i'll i uh, get back to that yeah so anyway because i had met george when i was in england you know i was just met him because uh, i was dating this girl who knew the agent so i you know we go dancing club and you know i probably danced with him couples you know with my girl right so i met him and i go to different places so one day i got a call uh, in 86 uh saying would i want to come to a session with this producer and i go who's it for he goes he couldn't tell me so anyway i was getting married a short time after that and i was engaged and i said sure oh you're not going to tell me all right so i went down to sound city studio and um you know i was introduced to um to do the session, Lauren Stuber and guitar, and uh, Jim Kelton on drums, who, you know, Jim's the guy, and I met George again, I said, hey, George, and he goes, I oh, yeah, hey, you know, I said, hey, I was dating Kathy, he goes, yeah, and he says, you're in the neck now, I go, yeah, so now I'm a somebody, right? right, I'm not just a, sh- a schmuck, trying to like, get near him, but, uh, but he said, yeah, you know, I know of you guys, you know, I like your, your music, I said, well, thank you, so I went, I go, yeah. so I, I felt a little more at ease that if I didn't know him, I'd really be nervous. I mean, only because I was reading a chart as I was recording, because it's a complex song called "Someplace Else," which is uh, if you look on YouTube from the trailer for the movie "Shanghai Surprise," that's the the track I did for. And "Shanghai Surprise," that before um, anyway, that song called "Someplace Else." It's on the trailer for the movie. George went back to England uh, after I did. I did two cuts with him, and I was really excited. The producer told me he's to in England. You know, I'd be flown over to play, and I thought I can postpone my marriage because I was nervous, right? But I, I waited. Anyway, I got a call that he was fired. You know, I guess because George met Jeff Lynn who lived down the street, and that was the marriage of that started the brilliant marriage between those two, right? Uh, Jeff Lynn's a genius, right? Right. So I didn't end up playing with George again, and the only evidence I have of it is a paycheck from Dark Horse Records, and uh, to track him on the uh, soundtrack, uh, it, I guess in the movie too I'm on that track, and um, you know, it was, a, it was great playing with him, I didn't take photos, I didn't, you know, it's one of those things where you don't want to do anything, to change anything, you know what I mean? Right. You just want to be there and enjoy the process, and uh, it's a memorable experience. And um, again, knowing you know, knowing him past, present, with him passing away and everything, it's um, I was very lucky for that small time period to work with him. You know, and I think that was a comeback for him too. Actually, he really hadn't done very much. He was sick, and this was his first coming
0: out, but, you know, so I enjoyed it very much. That's awesome, man, you know what, uh, now you just said, you know, you and Gary Merrick, are you guys planning any tours, we had talked on the phone, me and you, yeah, well, about an yeah, 80's Yeah, I, I was
1: playing with a few other people too, I also played with Mickey Free, I don't know if you're Mickey we played with Chalamar, but he, he does his own blues, kind of civilized Indian causes, and he's really talented, I've played some shows with him, as well and some uh, heroes of rock classic rock also Mike Panera. who I get to do Iron Butterfly I get to do Fear the Reaper and have Albert the show put on his Godzilla hat <laughs> <laughs> now can you believe that my show with Fear the Reaper and Godzilla in the same set
0: that's just funny it's funny as hell
1: I never thought I'd live that long and no. also going to be wild to achieve a and Stephen Wilson. Well, but anyway, that was that was short lived. But um, anyway, with Gary Myers, we we jammed together recently. We've known each other, but never played with each other. So we really hit it off. And this original drummer, Jack White, got together when we started rehearsing. So I think we're going to do uh, some shows, and also we might do a Valley Girl tour. We're having Modern English, Twins, so we'll do some shows together.
0: Well, that'd be awesome, man. You know what? I, I want to thank you for taking the time today, man. I appreciate it. We had, we got to talk. Uh, Friday about the interview and um, yeah so now how can people find you should they should they YouTube you when they they see you find your music
1: well you can YouTube me I mean I'm on Facebook I really haven't done my own page there is an act page you can find stuff if they want to talk to me I'm going to do my own page soon I've been really stupid and not getting that organized because I'm going to have to because I'm going to have a book coming out only because I kept journals over the years, and somebody's going to tell the story. It might as well be me, you know? Exactly. Um, because I'm the only one, I guess, who wants to. And my kids are, are going to be releasing their second album. They're in a band called Gateway Drugs. Great name, huh? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, I hope it means something else, but, uh, you know... But they're really talented. They did a first album tour, and now they're doing a, did a second album. They recorded it at uh, uh, Josh Homme studio, at Queen's of the Stone Age studio. It sounds amazing. And um, To my sons playing it, they all sing. Uh, and um, uh, my daughter, too, like kind of garage rock. Kind of, It's good. It, they, they know how to play it. I'm really proud of them. So that's coming up. And again, I'll be touring probably with Gary and Missing Persons. I did a tour with them this summer. And also, my son Gabe sat in on drums, Uh, to some missing person shows he
0: played the Greek as well last summer which was a real treat for me that's awesome man, well you know, I want to thank you Prescott people, go check out Prescott Niles go YouTube them, look them up and, yeah, you're going to enjoy it. And if you haven't listened to the Knack, I don't know what's wrong with you. Go listen to the Knack, and now you know the guy yeah, who is the basic. Yeah, gonna do
1: that. And also, November 28th, Record Day, they Turner album coming out, so if you get a chance, check it
0: out. Later. Okay, so people, check that out. Uh, also, people follow me on uh, Twitter. I'm at, at CooperTalk. Uh, my website, coopertalk.net, I have over... Uh, I do like 500, 600. I think I have 750 episodes up. Anyway, so follow me yeah, there. Yeah, great. I've watched some of them.
1: That's why I'm confident
0: talking to you. Thank you, man. Really so people, good. check it out. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.